intersections between areas of scholarly inquiry and areas of creative expression are both fraught with complexity and ripe with opportunity. Where and how these spheres of academic, intellectual, or creative work inform each other is often unique to the individual performing that work. But what happens when these two areas, the academic and the artistic, also engage the work of advocacy, of inspiring social and political change? I suppose the way that I see um, the connection there between aesthetic modes and um, a certain kind of advocacy um, is very much about with each poem, I'm always thinking about um, the ways in which the impact of those lines um, is aligned with the, um, with the, the sentiment I wanna communicate. Our guest on this episode of the BYU Humanities Center podcast is Professor Shireen Sherrard, the Sally Mead Hans Bascom Professor of English at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. She is the author of many important scholarly pieces that take up questions of belonging and global black identity, most recently through the theoretical frameworks of archipelagic American studies and eco-criticism. These topics are similarly considered in her excellent creative publications, including a recently published collection of poetry titled Grimoire, published by Autumn House Press, as well as an engaging personal essay titled Saltworks, published in Terrain Magazine. We spoke with Professor Sherrard about how these specific pieces and their associated areas of inquiry speak to the current and urgent conversations about race and racism in the United States, and how harmony between these areas of academic and intellectual work can forward the nation's and world's progress towards greater racial equality and justice. I'm Sam Jacob, a producer of this podcast and guest interviewer alongside Dr. Matthew Wickman, director of the BYU Humanities Center. And now our conversation with Shireen Sherrard. Shireen Sherrard, welcome to uh, our BYU Humanities Center podcast. It's great to see you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I should mention, I'm uh, joined today on the interview by Sam uh, Jacob. Sam is our Humanities Center intern and um, a person who performs many roles for us, including occasionally interviewers. So Sam, thank you for joining us too. Of course, happy to be here. Um, so I'll start uh, the interview here, uh, Shireen, uh, by asking you about these various fields in which you work. They're really provocative because they have uh, nice overlap, but they're but they're also discrete fields, right? You, you field of uh, African American studies focus on Black feminism, uh, environmental necrocriticism, uh, and also island studies, Caribbean islands especially. How do these things, in your experience, intersect and inform each other? Did you imagine them when you began taking them up as an organic piece, or did you acquire them as you went? That's a great question. Um, and thank you for, for having me here. I think that in some ways these fields evolved out of my own evolving interest. I began um, doing work primarily in African-American, um, late 19th, early 20th century writings um, and visual culture, particularly the, around the Harlem Renaissance, which I published in and wrote my dissertation on the Harlem Renaissance, but looking at iconography around the Black female body. So Black feminist inquiry and the body of research um, arising um, from looking at the intersections of race and gender and class were the foundational um, areas that I began my work in, um, always in many ways working with archives and using tools from literary history. But I always had this um, initially more of a secondary interest 
in Caribbean literature, especially the Francophone Caribbean and the Anglophone Caribbean, partly because I French is the language that I, uh, the second language that I have. And so those two um, areas um, from very early in my, um, even in my graduate career, one of my first publications was on um, Jamaica Kincaid's um, autobiography of my mother. Um, so I retained that interest as I continued my work on the Harlem Renaissance. And so in some ways, just as a scholar um, and through just the evolution of um, my areas of research, the Caribbean has returned, right? So it had always been there, but it, it came back, I think as an interest and in retooling and getting myself up to speed on what had changed within the field. That was how I encountered island studies. And the field of island studies, as well as archipelagic um, American studies, draw very much on tools from environmentalism and environmentalist criticism. And so given that I've always worked at that intersection around like race and gender and how um, working with the methodologies that come out of Afro-American studies um, change and refine how we think of what used to be considered more mainstream American literature and American literary studies. I brought those same, um, I would say I just brought that same perspective to thinking about island studies and environmentalism. Okay, great. We'll get into the poetry later, but you're also a poet a uh, multi-time published poet. Is that a, an interest that goes way back for you? Or is that also something you acquired as you kind of matured and became uh, a, a, a more refined scholar of literature and literary studies? Do you find yourself poet first, scholar later? Or was it scholar <laughs> first, poet later? Or were these kind of mutually developing interests? I, I would have to say probably poet first because I wrote a lot of poetry in my early childhood. Um, in these COVID uh, weeks, my, or I guess months now, my mother has been unearthing boxes in the garage and what she is finding is actually poetry <laughs> that I've written. So she'll text me, oh, look, I found another one. Or um, here's something that was produced in a journal that you edited for your high school. And so poetry was always there. Um, I did think about um, whether or not to go for um, an MFA as opposed to a PhD. Um, and ultimately, I think I, I really have always been a voracious reader. I was very much interested in teaching literature. I did not necessarily want to teach um, poetry or fiction, even though I continued to write it. I would say that the two um, areas, though, um, would sometimes one would have more emphasis than the other. Right, so writing the dissertation, that was an all-consuming <laughs> entity. It took everything, right? So during that period, um, not a lot of poetry was getting written. Um, but in the summers and over time, I would seek out ways of building my craft, submitting to journals. So I do feel like I was doing it all along, right? It's not something like I, even though the publication of the books have come later, um, that's partly because of the um, trying to balance between the expectations of publishing in academic journals and producing the kind of scholarship that's consistent with my you know, position, right? So um, there were times, especially on the tenure track where I could not give the same kind of emphasis to my creative work. That's that's interesting. I <laughs> Coming from, you know, as an undergraduate, I've, I've always been interested in just watching the way that different professors do negotiate that that balance. And um, it's, it's, it's an entertaining yet also <laughs> I feel a lot of sympathy, you know, knowing that so many professors balance 
such high level thinking across, like you said, creative areas, but also these critical and more scholarly or academic interests. And um, just, you know, the reason I'm here <laughs> as, a, as the undergraduate intern in this interview is um, we're kind of circling back to what you were discussing earlier about these, the intersection and sort of the, the synthesis of these fields. My sort of introduction to your work was actually through an essay that you wrote in Brian Roberts's uh, edited volume, uh, Archipelagic American Studies. Uh, Brian is a faculty member here at BYU. Um, and the essay that you wrote is, is about the novels of Pauline Hopkins. And there's this, this provocative moment that I, I, I think would be interesting just in terms of this more general discussion that we've been having about how you negotiate the intersecting kind of threads of, of inquiry in your academic fields as well as in the things that find your way into your creative works. And I wanted, if, if, if it's all right with you, to sort of um, raise this, this moment in this essay that I found um, especially provocative. Um, at the conclusion of this essay, you kind of propose um, there's, the, there, there's this inherent connectivity in a way between these fields in a way, but also into the people and spaces that these fields discuss, uh, thanks to islands. Uh, thanks to sort of the material and abstract character of islands. And if you're all right, I, I'm going to read to you uh, just the concluding lines of this essay and ask you to sort of respond to them in relation to this question that, that Matt raised earlier about um, the intersections of your fields and how you negotiate them. You write at the end of this essay that, you know, to borrow a phrase from Donna Haraway, thinking with islands, thinking with islands activates spatial and temporal circuits that reside in island tropes, which mark, for, for instance, the African-American diaspora as a part of an, Atlant of an archipelagic Atlantic tradition. And then you close by saying, you, I extend an open invitation to landlocked scholars to reread other quintessentially African-American narratives on island time. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that final phrase. And so I guess my question for you is, what is it about islands specifically either geographically or in their sort of literal material character or in the abstract way that they that they interact with these fields what is it about the the island specifically that generates these sort of productive reworkings and synthesis of these various fields that you're working in that's a great question um I, so initially my sense of or why the archipelagic appealed to me was that it just decentered the continent in the way that we think about the nation or just the relation between people, bodies of land and water. Um, the more I thought about islands though, the more I thought less about land and more about what was beneath the island, right? And the ways in which island structures are connected. Um, these are different kind of things, whether it's the tides and a kind of circling current, which is why I picked up on the idea of the circuit or whether it's through coral formations, the reefs that connect um, different um, series of islands to each other. So I think it was primarily that sense of connectivity that appealed to me. So on one hand, an island can seem um, a very contained solitary body, but in fact it is connected, right? To not just to other islands, but also through um, to connect to other continents um, in ways that we can't see unless we change our perspective. 
Um, and I would say that in this, is, this way, the connection between that essay um, that I wrote for um, Archipelagic American Studies, there's a moment in that essay, um, I think towards the end, but also in the middle when I'm talking about um, a picture that I take of a whipping post, right? right. Um, or hitching post, depending on how you look at it. And that's the moment when I sort of reveal myself, right, as the author within the text. And it's a connection between that and the series of essays that I would later write um, following um, in the trail of Mary Prince, right, in a creative nonfiction mode. So there's a way in which I would say that even the critical work and the creative nonfiction are connected archipelagically <laughs> as well, right? So there are these nodes in which um, one is an open door into another way of thinking or looking. And I do think that invitation there at the end is partly about just as a shifting perspective that might yield um, new or generative um, ways of seeing and, and experiencing um, the text as well as the history that um, contextualizes the works that uh, I've studied, whether it's um, material culture or literary in the case of Hopkins. That's what, what a fun way to, I, I just love what you said about your, not just the, the subjects that you take up, but the modes you know, generically nonfiction versus critical versus creative and poetry. Those are archipelagically interconnected too. What a cool way to, to synthesize that. And you raised, you raised this, this new collection of essays that you're currently writing, uh, these non creative nonfiction essays. The first of which, which we're, we're talking about today, salt works, which you published in terrain. Um, there's this, a, another fascinating moment that I think dovetails really nicely with what you just said about, um, things that are that that have a sort of inherent connectivity to them not only because of the geographic location but because of their material qualities there's a moment um that i that i'd like to raise uh, similarly to this in that essay salt works um and it's a moment to me where we've we've been discussing up to this point the affordances sort of in a positive way the 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 generative productive ways and influences that this connectivity can produce for you or for anybody, whether it be creatively or critically or scholarly. But this moment in salt work seems to also complicate that, that connectivity, maybe raise risks associated with that inherent connectivity. Um, in the paragraph, um, and I'm going to just read, uh, you know, sporadically from that paragraph is where you sort of break out of your narrative uh, in the essay about this trip, research trip that you took with your family to Grand Turk. Um, and you, you, you reflect here saying, one of the drawbacks of ecotourism is that it tends to coexist alongside rather than transform or replace conventional tourism. And then you continue, in black communities, there's a similar concept, linked fate. The fact that racial affinity overrides every other category of identity, including education and financial status. Like shared fate, link fate can be a blessing or a boomerang. Uh, that's a provocative passage for me. Um, and a provocative concept, too, I think, to suggest that things that, that have a connectivity are also risky, right? And that specific to this passage, that this, the idea of one's racial identity can be overpowering to other aspects of identity, such as gender or uh, ethnicity or geographic homeland or things like that. Could you talk a little bit more about this idea of, of linked fate, um, specifically maybe relating to its, 
its risks as much as its affordances and how this emerged to you? Has it always been sort of a, a, a nuanced balance of risk and affordance for you? And how did that emerge as you've, as you've progressed through your, your academic uh, career? Yeah, um, so I first came across or the concept of linked fate first came into my you know, repertoire when I was working on a different piece, actually um, the uh, biography of the Harlem Renaissance writer Dorothy West and doing work uh, research on an island. So in some ways the island theme <laughs> is still here and thinking about this um, community of um, middle to upper middle class African-Americans who had settled and created this space um, within Martha's Vineyard and all of the complicated elements that worked uh, with regards to interracial interactions with the white community, but also intraracial class interactions amongst African-Americans who were from New York, uh, as opposed to those who are maybe from the Southern states and how region, um, class status, all of these things impacted um, the ways in which um, people move throughout the community. And that concern around um, precarity, right? When you are in a space in which you feel like you have to uphold certain ideas of respectability, right? In order to preserve your safety, um, can lead people to behave in ways that are really counterproductive, right? To community. Um, and so that's part of what I think linked fate gets at, at least the way that I'm thinking about it as a blessing, right? Which a blessing would we think about kinship and come a kind of commonwealth, right? As opposed to something that can be a boomerang that draws and divides people. And I think there are ways in which um, the two concepts there, shared fate, which has more to do with um, people and animals and beings on a planetary scale. So when I think about the sh shared fate as a concept more from environmentalism, which really is just the idea that, you know, we are all occupants on this planet and what we do affects each other, right? As opposed to the concept of linked fate coming more out of political and economic theory that has to do with this particular, um, um, this particular reality that we saw play out very much, right, in the, the protest in the spring that um, blackness, right, will override, right, any other kind of a division or distinction. And again, that can be blessing, right, because it can create a unifying platform or identity, um, but it can also obscure, right, the real differences that people um, have, right, that individuals have. Um, so I see this as something that's always in a tension or oscillation, right? And there'll be certain moments when um, one aspect of one's identity or class status or position is, um, is highlighted over another. Can I ask you a question about that? That's, that's a very important point. And I think it's so we're taping this in uh, mid-November of 2020, and it's certainly been a very uh, fraught year in so many ways. Thinking about uh, an essay, a few essays I read a few years ago by Dipesh Chakrabarty, uh, talking about you know sort of where post-colonial concerns meet environmental concerns, right? And he's talking about uh, the way that um, we're all trained. Most of us who work in universities in literary studies are trained to be very acutely aware of cultural differences, racial differences, gender differences, a whole historical differences, a whole host of differences. But how in some ways he was contending in these essays, the biggest threat we face at present 
is the threat environmentally to the entire planet. The planet is, can't sustain life, then there's no basis for thinking about difference. And he said that what we need to think is what links us today, which is um, that we are all carbon burners. You know, we're all fossil fuel burners. Now, again, these two sides of, um, of you, there are multiple sides to the work that you do. It's what makes your work, I think, so really interesting here, Shireen. Um, but when you hear that kind of argument, which pulls in two directions, you know, do you find yourself leaning in one side or the other? Do you say, he's got a point, but, or that's a good point, but not at this time? Or do you say, no, that's the point. It's time to go there. I mean, how do you, how do you negotiate those kinds of strong claims? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's really the challenge for people who are working at the intersections of racial justice and environmental justice, right? Um, there's certainly connections because, you know, the environment, you know, there's just many ways to think about environment, right? And um, if we think about it, certainly we can think about it in the natural sense and think about islands and islands being threatened by the rising sea level, right? That seems like a very, you know, clear um, environmental um, concern. And yet when we think about um, who the inhabitants are of these islands, right, and the ways in which their priorities, you know, might involve things like, you know, just access to, you know, healthcare, um, looking for a viable economy outside of the exploitive tourist economy, right? They have these other, um, they have other needs. And, you know, in an ideal situation, you would see these needs, they would see them link up, right? And that's part of what I was getting at with the potential of ecotourism to be something, except that capitalism is just so good at assimilating everything to its own logic, right? So as soon as you get this great idea, you know, it becomes Becomes commodified and immediately, you know, and so then people are made to feel as if they're doing something good, right? Um, and and being responsible tourist, and yet that itself becomes its own kind of um, justification for you know more travel in certain ways, right? And so again, that um, it's you know it's you know, we always have to be, it's not to say that we shouldn't engage, right, in ecotourism, but it's just being conscious of the ways in which capitalism is always working to assimilate um, anything that has appeal, right, to its own, uh, its own um, investments. That's a great point. So this, so this call then to be aware, kind of a call to vigilance, kind of Maybe is a nice segue into your um, really, I think, wonderful book of poems, Grimoire. Um, can we make that turn? Is that all right with you? Uh, um, there are, um, let me tell you a quick story about a conversation I had with a music composer recently, works at a university. So it's just kind of like, you know, kind of like artsy music, you know, it's not meant for wide release, you know, uh, but, but it is stuff that's kind of really at the forefront of the field of music production, music composition. And he was talking about how different things are today from where they seem to be even a decade ago. He said that he was talking about, and I related to this, my grad school years were in the 1990s, you know, kind of, these are the era, the era of the leftovers of deconstruction, you know, mm -hmm. and lots of focus there on ambiguity and um, things that are read in multiple ways and, and they have kind of aesthetic quality. He was talking about how in music composition these days, like there is so much focus on advocacy that a lot of discussions about um, form or mood or um, sort of ambiguity of instrumentation or what have you, 
it, it almost becomes secondary to questions about what a particular piece is meant to achieve, what it's what position it's taking, what it's advocating. Um, how in your own work as a poet, because your 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 poems are beautiful on the one hand, but they also are quite socially they're very aware and poignant on the other hand. How do you negotiate the tensions between the aesthetic imperative, right? To produce something that has a kind of a formal integrity on the one hand, but also say something that seems to be socially or politically or environmentally relevant on the other. How do you negotiate those things in your work? That's a really difficult question. Um, I often, I guess when writing, I think a lot about wanting the form to match up with the intent or the content. I mean, that's generally where or what I, um, what I strive for, um, but it may not match up in a transparent overt way, right? So, um, you know, in Grimoire, there are several poems that take the form of recipes because one of the overarching themes of the book is that it's a conversation with one of the earliest known um, writers of an African-American cookbook, a woman named Melinda Russell. So the form of the recipe, um, which has its own particular pattern and ritual, the list of imperatives, um, that's a form that I use in several of the poems. I even use at points uh, found language, um, but partly because as an artist, I get bored doing any one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't stay with the same form, right? So there are some poems in that book that use redaction, right? Which is a more, you know, become a very popular contemporary um, technique among um, poets right now. Um, sometimes I've written what I would call lazy sonnets <laughs> um, because I'm trying to play around with maybe ideas or certain um, const constructions of language in certain ways. So I suppose the way that I see um, the connection there between aesthetic modes and um, a certain kind of advocacy um, is very much about with each poem, I'm always thinking about um, the ways in which the impact of those lines um, is aligned with the, um, with the, the sentiment I wanna communicate so that a poem like Outcome it's written in these very, you know, sort of many, mostly two line stanzas. The language there is very repetitive, right? Because I'm trying to emphasize something um, as opposed to something like um, a poem, like What Makes the Dutch Antilles, which is a much more lyrical, um, abstract poem that requires um, a, a lot more extant knowledge, right? Um, to access. You know, so um, the idea that both of those poems could coexist in the same collection, I think is is part of what would be my aesthetic. I, so. Lovely, and they're, they're great poems. Can we um, maybe have you read a couple of these and talk about them with us? Because they're just, one of, here's one. Um, you mentioned that uh, uh, the book is based partly on these recipes, right? Um, one of the marble cake on page seven um, is, uh, I think uh, it's so striking because we're talking about cake and yet we really aren't, <laughs> so, <laughs> right? I, could you um, read this for us? 
Sure. Yeah. I also would say I love to put uh, wrap things in unexpected packages, right? So I think that's one of the examples here. You achieved that here. Absolutely. (laughs) Certainly. Marble cake, the white, my son, half cup white flour, quarter cup brown sugar has trouble with fractions. When pregnant, I did not follow instructions. Beat the yolks and sugar together until very light. It was months before I accepted I was carrying another human being. Add half pound butter, whip 14 egg whites, flavor with lemon, half gill brandy. The dark. The ophthalmologist suspects he's colorblind. Half cup molasses, the yolks of eight eggs. Perhaps that's why he prefers brown sugar in his oatmeal. He can't tell how it's different from white. Flavor with cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, or mace. I confess, I palmed the iron pills, drank light roast brews without sugar or cream. Mixed children usually come out beautifully. The doctor is unsure about mine. Paper and butter the pan. First a layer of the white, then of the dark. Alternative finishing with the white. Thank you. Uh, I love that poem. Uh, can you tell us about its composition? And was it was it harder to write because of what you're bringing together or did the, the different components, the recipe and discussion about your son, did that actually make it easier creatively to produce something like this because of the, what you were bringing together? Well, the, um, so I would say in, in that poem, you know, there is this recipe, right, that's in um, Melinda Russell's cookbook for, you know, marble cake. And I thought a lot about how um, the cliches around how we describe, especially Black children, in terms of color and mocha and, you know, these kinds <laughs> of things that we use to ascribe um, to the different kinds of hues of skin color, um, as a way on, on one hand, like one critique I would have of that is moving away from black, like this idea of a black, you know, um, political, more politicized idea that actually doesn't have anything to do with the color of one's skin. Um, and also I think pushing back against the kind of racial taxonomy right, that often accompanies the ways in which people think about um, genetics, right, and interracial relationships and the multifaceted heritage of what it means to be African-American. So I was playing a little bit with the idea of, of marble cake as, as each color sort of having some inherent purity, right, that then you know, swirls together. Um, so all of that is in um, that poem as the speaker is thinking about the process of making, right? What it means to follow directions, right? Not just to create a cake that tastes good and has a kind of structural um, stability, but also in terms of a child and the things that you do both before, um, during and after, right? To, um, to bring a child into the world. And a little bit there, I would say around um, uh, the ways in which mothers are also um, pregnant, I would say pregnant or, or women who are um, in the process of um, bearing life can are also highly scrutinized by the medical community as well. So that's the part about like the iron pills and you know being told to do all of these very particular things to end up with um, uh, a particular outcome, 
right? And there's a lot of responsibility placed on the mother there as well. And as we know, like with baking, you can do everything right and still get surprised, right? <laughs> so all of that, I think, is it's that's I think there are many of those ideas are, are contained within marble cake. I think baking is a brilliant uh, conceit, really, to carry all those ideas together. It's really beautiful conceit. There'd be one more poem I'd love you to talk to. This is a poem I found very powerful and uh, very moving. It's Open Curtains on page 34. Mm -hmm. Sure. Open Curtains. If it is barely spring, Orange tulips frame my neighbor's bungalow, a roguish backdrop for the boys' white sneakers, black and yellow hoodies. They are up to nothing or something. I am listening to their buzzing, but not hearing. I am thinking of my boy on a parallel street in a like formation, not regarded by me. I read the same page over and over until when I look up, they are gone the bruised shadows of tulips loiter in their wake. I love that. I love how it ends, the, the bruised shadows of tulips. It captures that the parental concern, you know, were the, were the tulips bruised inadvertently, just harmless fun, or are they indicative somehow of, of in some ways more malicious intent of these boys on that block um, that, that Betokens threats to the speaker's own child. It was a very beautiful poem. Can you tell us a bit about about that poem? How it how it came to be? What you were trying to do there? Well, it was around the time I think I was writing that poem afterwards, or at least meditating on um, what happened to Trayvon Martin and the ways in which um, a child um, just walking home you know, carrying candy, right, is being watched, right? The constant um, specter, the constant panopticon, right? Even within his own neighborhood. And that's something, you know, living in a neighborhood where we're one of the few families of color and I have young children and wanting them to have, or to experience that freedom of being able to explore, right? And move through a space and, and get into the kind of trouble that is necessary <laughs> to grow <laughs> and learn. And yet for black boys, right, they have very little quarter to make any kind of mistake, right? Um, even to make no mistake at all, right? Is to just existing is to invite a kind of um, danger. And so part of what I was reflecting on there was my experience of, of watching like through a glass, through a telescope, and then imagining, you know, the kinds of associations that I might make, right, or that one could make. We don't necessarily know the age or the race, right, of who uh, the speaker is looking at, um, but processing or thinking through um, moving from a stage of watching to a stage of action, right? So the action there that doesn't happen in the poem, but which the speaker is worried about is the action of say calling the police, right? Um, and what 
provide result from that. So all of that is there, I think, in open curtains, right? And and I'm hoping um, it's a poem that I was hoping to write as a way of getting people to have a reflection, right, <laughs> when they are confronted, and again to think through the ways in which um, they might have the ways in which bias, right, is always there. Um, kind of like a sort of shade over what they're viewing. I I totally agree. Just to interject really quickly, I mean, I had that that same sort of reflective moment that you describe when when I read not just this poem, but many of the of the poems in 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 your collection. And um, I'm I'm fascinated too by the way in which this poem and and others of your of your of of the poems in this book seems to to sort of articulate that sense of wanting to prompt that reflection or engage directly with you know these these urgent questions that that we're all need to we are all asking and can need to continue asking um, about things like race and things like that and there's a an interesting mode that I I like that you do in this poem and in others where you you seem to, use kind of non-human subjects like food, for example, baking ingredients or, or tulips in, in open curtains. Um, there's, there's even a moment in Saltworks where you, you do this with um, the moment where you talk about your husband uh, eating the, eating the, the, this is maybe not as, as pleasant of an image as, <laughs> as like baking a cake or tulips of eating a, a sea worm <laughs> that you, that you fished. But, but this, 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 um, mode that I, I see you using with reusing non-human subjects or actors to reframe or prompt this sort of reflection. Can you talk a little bit about how you see these, these, um, these resources, these, these objects that are so entwined with, you know, food, for example, is so interconnected to our, our human bodies and yet seems to take on an agency of its own. Can you talk about the role of those sort of non-human subjects and or actors in, in your poetry? Somewhat. <laughs> I think some, you know, there, there maybe is a subterranean level in which they're acting that I can't fully access or explain mm. um, as well. But I do think uh, food in particular, you know, um, you know, because it's something that we consume, because it's ephemeral, um, because it becomes part of us in a certain way once we have consumed it, um, it does work as a metaphor or synecdoche for a lot of the different ideas that I'm developing developing um, throughout the piece. Um, I try and be careful of too much personification right. <laughs> when I'm working with um, um, creatures that are, you know, not like us in certain ways. I, I want to sometimes not always say that, you know, the bee is like the boy, right? I don't, right. I don't always want to create a one-to-one a, a -one correlation there. Um, but I do think there's a way in which, um, especially if it's a being that we, that is smaller, you know, or something that we just, that is foreign enough or different enough that we can um, easily other it, you know, like a mollusk, right? right. Um, that's, so there's that, that moment right in there. You know, you don't, you, if, it, if a mullet, it's not cute. It's not like a, you know, it's not like a puppy, right? So <laughs> we can make these justifications that, you know, perhaps the sentience isn't there, um, but, at the same time, we know that it is, yeah. right? But it's just so 
foreign that it's hard, um, it's harder for us to process. And so, I mean, writers and artists, I think, you know, part of our work is to help people process things that are different, right, in that way. Um, but there's also a way in which you, I, or at least I want to also respect that difference and to not just completely um, humanize <laughs> um, a, a being that isn't human and that, that there's a, a value to that being's non-humanness as well, if that makes sense. Certainly, yeah. I, 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 I find that that really provocative that the, the sort of independent uh, as you say, sort of independent li- aliveness of these of these um, foreign to us anyway, foreign to us as humans. But um, these these different entities are are so productive um, for these you know acts that we're trying to engage as you know maybe naturally self reflexive or self centered beings as humans. Is that when we when we allow ourselves either, you know, through poetry to, to sort of channel that and, and try to tap into that. What is, what is the sentience of a mollusk, for example, or, or what does, what does the composition, the non-living composition of a cake generate for me in terms of my own understanding of my own frame within the world? I just, I love, I find that very provocative. So thank you for, for explaining that (laughs) some more. Thank you. We have about maybe five minutes in the interview, Shireen. A couple more questions we want to ask you. One would just be would be this. I mean, so it's been such a 2020 has been such a rough year in so many ways, but it's also been a year of I think increasing consciousness of of, of in some ways for a lot of people uh, in the country. You think about you know names like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, for example. A uh, lot of awareness there. Uh, I've been so, not surprised, but moved by the degree of uh, public outrage uh, at these kinds of things. I, I, as you uh, look at where we're at, and you're a scholar, again, of things that are not just um, intellectually interesting, but also are socially significant, what gives you, what encourages you in what you see, or what do you find especially discouraging as you gaze out on 2020 looking forward? Well, I'll start with, I think, what I find <laughs> discouraging to maybe <laughs> hopefully end on a, a, a more up note. Um, I would say that, you know, as a, you know, as a scholar, right, I'm a student of history, right, even though I'm not a historian. And the things that give me pause are the cycles especially around the kind of language that precedes or that has preceded um, many of the, some of the worst crimes against humanity that we've known, right? So the thing that that gives me pause is, um, you know, not just um, the hate speech, but the nature of the closing ranks that you see um, the, the lack of, of, of a recognition of any kind of shared fate, right? Whether it's with the planet or otherwise, um, those are the things that really frighten, have frightened me about 2020. You know, if it's something as small as, say, a refusal to wear a mask, right? Um, because you see that, or a person sees that as um, somehow impeding their own individuality, even if it's at the expense of someone else's life, you know, that, 
um, is a profound disconnect. Um, and yet I would say the place where I did find um, more stirrings of hope was in seeing that when, you know, the protests that came about um, in Missouri, when Black Lives Matter as a, a movement really um, began or, or was um, you know, really generated, you know, under um, um, those, those initial, those, those early protests and how um, the interracial nature of the 2020 protest, yeah. when you saw the people and, and not just, just all kinds of people, right? Age across ages, and um, just, you know, just seeing that um, everyone outraged, right? Against something that happened to a person of a very particular ethnicity and gender, um, that sense of kinship Right, even if it was, even if it's only transitory, right? I think that's the the concern is that will, will they will these be lasting, um, lasting coalitions? Um, I don't know how to predict that, but just that um, those moments, the optics, right, of people, you know, wanting to to say, you know, standing up and and you know, again. You know, not just sort of staring through the window, right, through the open curtains of the window, but actually, you know, coming out into the streets and um, linking arms, and in a time when we're all supposed to be maintaining distance, um, that was um, th those even in the midst of the sadness of seeing these cycles of violence recur, that you know did give me hope. So I'm hoping you know that as we move into um, 2021, right, that um, those will be the seeds of, of people working to be more reflective and conscious and intentional about um, working towards racial justice, as well as environmental justice, because they are connected. Great. Maybe as one last question, just give you a chance to tell us about where your work is headed next. You work in these you know, such diverse fields, you know, poetry and as a scholar and as a creative nonfiction writer. Uh, what's on the horizon for you? Well, um, these essays of which Saltwork is one, there's also another um, in the series that's been published called Isle of Refuge. So there's this series of essays that I'm working on following in the footsteps of Mary Prince. Um, I saw this as a three-part series, potentially a fourth, depending on if I wanted to visit another island, visiting each of the islands that she writes about in her, um, her slave narrative. Um, that was interrupted because um, doing place-based environmentalist writing requires that I be able to go to the place. <laughs> and right now travel um, isn't happening. Um, but what I've been doing is thinking about um, the way how these these essays would find themselves within a book, right? And so I'm part of what the work that I can do, um, the inward work is understanding how or the, the threads and the connections um, that circle. I, I find that I do return, I think, as this conversation is to similar themes. And I'm hoping that they will find them a place together within a book. Um, but you know, I'm writing one essay at a time. Yeah, great. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, uh, and thank you for your uh, beautiful and thoughtful work. Um, I, it's it's uh, been a pleasure for me to engage it more fully, and I've learned a lot from it. Um, 
and uh, enjoyed this conversation immensely. Thank you to Sam on the interview for your great questions and, and uh, um, have a have a wonderful rest of your of your day and uh, 2020. Uh, Shireen, good luck to you. Thank you. It's great getting to talk to both of you. Thanks, Sam and Matthew. Thank you for listening to this episode of the BYU Humanities Center podcast. Think clearly, act well, appreciate life. This podcast is sponsored by the Humanities Center and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University and is produced and edited by Brooke Brown and Sam Jacob. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by the Soli Chamber Orchestra and Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. I'm Matthew Wickman, founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and host of this podcast. If you're interested in other episodes of this podcast or want to know more about the BYU Humanities Center, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.